Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. So, almost Christmas. Christmas Day, two weeks today as we're recording. Oh boy. Yes, I I, I shall try to contain my enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) I'm more thinking of I've got deadlines between now and then. (laughs) Deadline? No, I've got no deadlines. I've got the tree up, the Christmas puddings are made. Christmas cakes made, everything's sorted. I've got a big tree downstairs. We know, it almost tried to attack us on the way in. Yeah, photos will be available. Oh, sweet Jesus, no. My wife had a great idea for how to photograph us under the tree. Literally, under the tree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this has not been the most dignified of evenings. I've spent a pretty a big chunk of the last half hour like a turtle stuck on its back, except with a fucking face full of pine needles. <laughs> Yeah, I swear that thing was trying to burrow its way into my chest. So I was listening to another podcast today. Traitor! Sorry. Why, why would you want to there, do that? I know, I know. There is only, there is only there, one true podcast, no, Paul. There was another <laughs> podcast, and it's called Saving the Game, and it was talking about non-combat conflict resolution. Ah, okay. Which, kind of interesting topic. I'd not listened to the show before, and I was a little surprised when, after doing their introductions and introducing the topic... They then quoted scripture. Oh, wow. I think that's a regular segment. So they quoted a few passages from the book of Jeremiah. Oh, Oh, cool. I'd personally revert to Murphy's Law myself, but... I hadn't encountered that before, but, you know, whatever pushes your buttons, I guess. Yeah. No, no, that sounds fairly neat to me. Well, maybe we can do that next time, Scott. Yeah. (laughs) Bring your Bible. We'll run a course. I've got a few passages memorised. So tonight's topic is the Cubicle 7 line World War Cthulhu. Scott, Matt, and myself have all worked on it. Of course, this means we're not exactly impartial. You know, particularly myself, as, as line developer, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of honour-bound to promote it. It would be disingenuous to say that there weren't any uh, aspect of promotion to this, but at the same time, a number of people have asked me at conventions what World War Cthulhu is, uh, what kind of space it occupies in the market, what differentiates it from other products, and we figured, well, we've got a podcast... We might as well use it to tell people. Also, there's the fact that there's a book that's just come out, uh, the first supplement for World War Cthulhu, uh, called Europe Ablaze. Mm-hmm. And Europe Ablaze is the first collaboration between the three of us that's, a- that's actually gone into print. It's not the first one we worked on together, but it's the first one that's actually got in- gone into print. And the physical books have shipped. Uh, they're in shops all over the place now, so you can actually buy it. Yeah, and it's the collection of scenarios for World War Cthulhu, right? It is, yeah. Six scenarios, but we'll go into that in a bit more detail later. Sure. So let's kick things off with an introduction from Scott about what World War Cthulhu is. 
At the moment, it's a setting book for Call of Cthulhu that allows you to play what's actually, in a lot of ways, fairly standard Call of Cthulhu-type adventures, but against the backdrop of the Second World War. But there are a few twists that make it you know, a bit different from, from normal Call of Cthulhu adventures. Uh, and again, we'll, we'll go into a bit more detail of these as we go along. As you've probably seen, it's not the only game on the market at the moment that addresses uh, World War Two, but I'm satisfied that it, you know, World War Cthulhu does something unique and very interesting, and I hope over the course of this podcast we can show you exactly what that is. Now it's over to Matt for an introduction to the setting. Right, I don't need to give you a history lesson on World War Two. I'm sure most people have heard of that and seen enough of it in films, so I won't need to go over The Great Escape one more time. The main focus of World War Cthulhu focuses on the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, uh, formed in 1940 under Churchill's orders to set Europe ablaze. Hmm, funny, I've heard that uh, quote twice now tonight. That would that, yeah. make a really good title for a book. Yeah, Someone yeah, should do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the SOE's mandate was to perform sabotage, assassination, etc. across Europe, or across the globe, in fact. They operated in the Far East, um, predominantly in Europe, though, I'd say. Yeah, and I seem to remember there were a couple of operations in North Africa as well, but it was primarily yeah those two arenas, and, mm-hmm. and mainly Europe. Yeah. I say the war obviously spread further. They didn't call it a world war for nothing. Um, within the SOE, this is where the Lovecraftian element of the setting comes in. There is an organisation called Network N, run by a shadowy spymaster, who may or not be Nyarlathotep. Funny that they, they both begin with an N, though. Um, only your keeper knows the answer to that one. The book contains various different suggestions rather than uh, canonical examples as to what N could be. Um, This very much follows in the model of the likes of Stephen Alziz in Delta Green, that you're potentially going to have a different N with any game you play with different keepers, or even if the same keeper runs different games, there could be different Ns. Yeah, sometimes he may be completely benevolent, sometimes he may be a, you know, a complete manipulator, sometimes, as you said, he may actually have his own mythos-related agendas or be Nealithotep himself. <laughs> yeah, it, it varies from game to game. Yeah. Well, speaking of agendas, um, N's primary goal is to combat the mythos wherever he finds it. He has a massive information-gathering network that spread its tentacles and tendrils all across Europe and all across the globe. And when he hears that there's a threat in a particular area, he will either engineer an SOE mission that takes place in and around that vicinity, or, if there's a mission that's going there anyway, he'll ask operatives that are part of Network N, yeah, dear old chap, just wander over there and see if there's any anything poking out of the ground or anything odd that's going um, going on down there, and be a, good, be a good boy and get rid of it for me. So all these missions take place primarily behind enemy lines. Um, You'll be operating in countries where you've got the enemy, the mundane human enemy to deal with, whether it be Axis forces, any foreign army which wants you dead, basically, as you are a spy behind enemy lines. And then on top of that, you've got the mythos to deal with. So, yay! Pretty standard, really. And that's essentially where the PCs come in. So your your investigators are those poor hapless souls which are dropped behind enemy lines to deal with the problem. Well, except they're not actually that hapless. I mean, they've had SOE training. They're, you know, some some of the most dangerous people involved in the war in terms of their skills and abilities. Uh, you know, they, they they're actually very well trained for what they're doing. It's just what they're doing is phenomenally dangerous. And it's back to Scott for a consideration of the tone of the game. One of the things that defines World War Cthulhu is the tone. 
You've probably encountered other games that take a much more pulpy approach to subject matter like this, but this isn't a game where you're going to be fighting Nazi necromancers and armies of uh, undead uh, monstrosities. This isn't a game where you're going to be fighting alliances of the Axis and the Mythos. This this is a game where it's set very much in the historical Second World War, based around, in, in, in a lot of cases, historical SOE missions. It's just that because of N's involvement in things, you're going to have these side missions which will take you into encounters with the mythos and dealing with mythos problems, uh, which is just going to be an added complication. So in that respect, it is you know, like your normal gritty, nasty Call of Cthulhu missions uh, or adventures just mixed in with military missions. The tone was one of the things that I most liked about the game when I played your scenario, Scott. We were SOE operatives sent to on a, on a military mission, but also there was a Mythos mission and I couldn't figure as a player whether the two were combined or whether they were discreetly separate. And that led to a lot of additional interest for me because usually I would have the Mythos mission and that'd be it. You know, when I call it a mission, you know, when you're playing a regular Call of Cthulhu yeah. game, you've got something you're trying to achieve. But there were kind of two things that I was trying to achieve in the game and trying to figure out if they were interlocked or whether they would... Yeah, that, that was very interesting. That had a real interesting dimension. And also just the... When you're playing normally a Call of Cthulhu game, the Mythos is the threat the rest of the world is, is generally okay, you know, in most yeah. games. You know, you Whereas in this, you're in you're behind enemy lines as well as being facing a mythos threat. Yeah, uh, you may have complications in a normal Call of Cthulhu game with trying to dodge the authorities or gangsters or something like that. But on the yeah, they're nothing compared to the Gestapo. One of the things I like about this military mission aspect as well is the fact that it puts a focus onto the scenarios. The structure of them, and we'll get into the structure a bit later, but the thing I like about that is that it presents you with a very defined problem to deal with. You're sent off, you know that you've got a problem to deal with, but you're given a lot of leeway in how you do it. And the beauty of that is that as a, in a role-playing game you're sent off as a team of four, five, six people to do it. Now, usually, if you're investigating a local murder, then why would four, five, or six private investigators going to be doing that? With an SOE operation, historically, that's the kind of size team that often were sent to do mm. these jobs. So it, it actually you know, lends itself totally to a, a role-playing game situation. Hand-in-hand hand with that is that in the um, SOE team, you're going to have specialists, which again, a role-playing game does or tries to do. You know, each player is encouraged to have their own sort of specialisms. So again, it lends itself perfectly to that. Yeah, manages the spotlight time thing perfectly mm. because you, you'll each have your moments to shine during the mission. And staying with Scott, we look at the SOE in fact as well as fiction. We've already touched on who the Special Operations Executive were, but we'll give a little bit of background for those of you who might not have encountered them. As Matt's already said, SOE was founded in 1940, with a remit to basically go behind enemy lines and perform acts of sabotage, assassination, guerrilla warfare, training resistance movements, uh, disinformation propaganda, reconnaissance. Basically, if it was a nasty, underhanded backstabby type thing to do, they'd send the SOE in to do it. That does make me think of, there was another name that they were kind of given, which kind of 
accentuated that quality of them, but the, I can't remember off the top of my head what it was. There were a few. I mean, one of their their uh, nicknames was the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. That's the one. Yeah, yeah which I love. <laughs> so ironically, so gentlemanly. Well, yes, the name no. is. So, uh, yeah, I see. Well yes. phrased. But yes, I mean, they were also known as Churchill's Secret Army. Uh, and yeah, they really were a secret. I mean, this is one of the, the uh, kind of the, the, the mind-boggling things about them, that they maintained this degree of secrecy despite having thousands of people involved, that, you know, it, it, within the government, most people didn't know SOE existed. Within the military, most people didn't know SOE existed. When it came to the recruitment process, I, I, I've been reading a little bit about their recruitment process recently. People would be identified as suitable candidates for all sorts of reasons. In most cases, it was because they were someone who was known to a member of SOE already and was considered to be sound, or known to a member of the security services, because SOE worked hand-in-hand hand with SIS. And for once, it wasn't down to whether it had been to Oxford or Cambridge. No, no. I mean, it, there was a little bit of that, but at the same time, they recruited all sorts of uh, strange people. And we'll get into the kinds of people from whom they, you know, the, the, the pools of people from whom they drew in a few moments. But as far as the, the, the recruitment was concerned and the training, uh, people weren't told what they were being recruited for. Uh, and the training was broken up into a number of different phases. And so part of the, the idea of this, the, you know, this phase training was that it allowed them to weed people out before they actually learnt too much about you know, the nature of the, or even the existence of SOE. So, for example, you know, in their initial training, they'd go along to an English country house and you know, they, they'd learn some basic stuff about small arms, uh, you know, uh, uh, map reading, Morse code, stuff like that. But at the same time, they'd be given a bit of leisure time and they'd be given unlimited access to alcohol. And the idea was that by sort of encouraging people to get drunk, they'd get some idea of how discreet they were and whether they had loose lips and stuff like that. Uh, and, oh, yeah, the, the, the whole idea of in vino veritas. And so they'd actually weed quite a lot of people out at this stage just because you know, they'd get drunk and shoot their mouths off. It wasn't until they got to the final part of their training that they were actually told uh, that they were uh, joining the Special Operations Executive and what SOE was. I, th th there was a lovely example I was reading of uh, this woman. She'd made it through the first stage of the training. She'd made, you know, she was on the second stage, which were, tended to take place up in the Scottish Highlands. And this was what was referred to as the paramilitary training. So this was, you know, lots of running around in the countryside, learning how to sabotage railway lines, playing around with live explosives, uh, shooting uh, off every variety of gun they could get their hands on and learning to maintain them, learning how to kill people silently with their bare hands, stuff like that. And at some point during all this, this woman piped up and said, I thought I was being recruited for a secretarial job, and, and <laughs> no one had told her any differently. Wow. <laughs> that's another aspect that's in uh, our favour with role-playing games, the fact that women were so strongly involved in it, mm. uh, because often, particularly from a historical perspective, it can be argued that women wouldn't have played such a big role. So it's great to be able to get a, a mix of genders in the, in the role-playing game. Sometime in the 1980s, there was even a TV show which was specifically about female SOE agents called Wish Me Luck. Uh, I, I haven't actually seen it, but I believe it's rather good. It ran for about three series. SOE recruited a lot of people who you wouldn't expect 
to be uh, a part of the British military. I mean, for a start, a lot of the people they recruited were foreign. Uh, because in a lot of cases, they'd recruit people uh, who were <coughs> refugees from countries that had been occupied by the Axis. Uh, and then they give them specialist training, you know, in sabotage or you know, assassination or whatever missions they wanted them to perform. Uh, give them new cover identities and new documents, and then drop them back behind, you know, their own lines because these people would obviously know an awful lot about uh, about the local lay of the land and, mm. uh, and would know it, the language fluently it, and uh, exactly convincing. Yeah, I mean, this means a lot of SOE agents weren't British. And there's even things like the fact that they'd uh, recruit openly gay agents as well at a time when homosexuality uh, was illegal in, in uh, the UK. Because, again, you know, they could see that under certain circumstances that you know, this would actually be advantageous for certain undercover missions. So a very pragmatic approach. Again, they recruited a lot of criminals because of the skills they had, you know, burglars and, and thieves of all varieties, because you know, they, they had skills that were going to be useful. This is like a perfect script for a role-playing game. It really is. I can't believe that, uh, I don't know, every, everything you come up with just sounds like it's it's ideal, really. Yeah. I, and, uh, yeah, they were quite happy even recruiting people who had anti-British sentiments and so on, because as long as they hated the Axis more, because, again, it was that whole pragmatic thing. Right. Yeah. You, you didn't have to be loyal to us. You just had to be a useful tool that could so be So you used. could have a... I.e., you can have a really interesting mix of characters, and as a player playing one of those characters, you're not all kind of cookie cutter, part of a team, and towing the party line. No, absolutely not. You do want the group to mesh together relatively well because you're in a very dangerous situation for a variety of reasons, and if you get too much infighting in there, you're just going to die. <laughs> no, that's very true, but it still doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt having at least a little bit of friction. Oh, yeah, yes. One specific example uh, of recruiting foreign agents but, yeah, is uh, one of the best-known SOE missions, which is Operation Anthropoid. A number of uh, Czech nationals, or Czechoslovakian nationals as they were at the time, but they were, they were Czechs, who were in exile in the UK, were recruited by SOE and then trained up and dropped back in Czechoslovakia uh, with the idea of, of assassinating more, and, and they did eventually successfully do so, assassinating SS uh, Obergruppenführer uh, Reinhard Heydrich, uh, who was pretty much tipped to take over from Hitler if, if Hitler ever died. And yeah, SOE did manage to knock him off. Even when people were foreign nationals like this, uh, going back to their, their home countries, as well as having to provide them with cover identities, in some cases had to provide them with, with odd little bits of training as well. And th this is really quite bizarre. Th there was an example of someone who was sent off to France, uh, and they were actually French, but they obviously hadn't been there since uh, the war had begun. So they were caught almost immediately, uh, or at least you know, came under suspicion almost immediately, because they'd gone into a cafe and ordered a black coffee. At the time, the, you know, the cafes weren't serving anything other than black coffee because uh, there was a shortage of milk. And it's the fact that they specifically asked for that at a time when everyone was just asking for coffee that singled them out as, oh, I as suspicious. See. Right. It, it was just it's not that they ordered white coffee, it's that they ordered black coffee. And... When it was redundant, yeah. Oh, okay. And just such a silly little thing. Yeah. But, but yeah, that immediately flagged them up as someone who hadn't been around. 
Another aspect of SOE that makes them kind of cool for role-playing games is the fact that they used all sorts of uh, weird equipment. Uh, there was a lot of custom equipment that was designed for them. And they had uh, this a facility called Station 12, where a lot of the stuff was researched uh, and developed and, and constructed, that uh, <laughs> was actually the inspiration for the Q laboratories in the James Bond films. Yeah, it really feels like that. Yeah. yeah. And and they made some weird shit. They, they must really... have had so much fun. <laughs> I mean, some of the stuff that they came up with does seem like, you know, the, the, the kind of thing you'd expect from overexcitable schoolboys. Can you imagine sitting around in the meeting? Let's come up with exploding rats. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one of the most famous ones. And yeah, they, they, they did. They had exploding rats. They'd get hollowed out rat carcasses, fill them with plastic explosives and stuff time pencils up their asses. And the idea of these things was that they'd be left in uh, piles of coal where they'd um, be inconspicuous in theory. Uh, and you know, they, they, then they'd be able to be used to blow up boilers. In practice, the first time they tried using them, the Germans actually found them. So as a result, they didn't see a lot of active use throughout the war. But I, the official story, and I, I don't know how much of this was just optimism uh, on the part of SOE, was the fact that you know, from this point on was they didn't need to use them because the Germans were just jumpy about every dead rat they find. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there was some stuff that they developed which was very very practical very um very useful uh, you know, the, the the classic one is the the fairburn sykes fighting knife which mm-hmm. was the particular soe commando knife it's a you know a kind of stilettos almost what it was especially good at was killing people mm-hmm. uh, and it was so dangerous that they, d- they weren't actually allowed to use them during training uh when when uh, soe trainees were trained in knife fighting they were actually given short bits of rope stiff rope uh, to simulate these because obviously you know if you stab someone with them they'd know about it mm. and yeah they developed these uh these well rod one-shot pistols which would fit up the sleeve of your jacket and the idea was that they were you know very effective assassination weapons because basically you go up to someone in the crowd and brush up against them uh, and fire that one shot into them from point blank range and even though it was a relatively small caliber gun you know it was very very effective at killing people mm. Well, Rod was actually someone who worked for uh, SOE, and so there are a number of things named after him, yeah, that's like, the, like the like the Well Rod submersible, which was a one man submarine. Uh, was that was that the White Lotus that went into the water and then the fins came outside? <laughs> was that the SOE? Yeah, it, it wasn't far off that, but but yeah, this this, Norfolk. <laughs> this was something that didn't actually see a lot of practical use because it turned out to be not very well designed and quite dangerous to use. A subaquatic coffin, <laughs> pretty much. But yeah, I mean, some of the stuff that they did that, that sounds like stuff that you see in a joke shop actually turned out to be very practical. One of the things that they developed was this particular type of itching powder. And, you know, itching powder, I mean, that really does just sound like a practical mm. joke. But this stuff was very persistent and very scratching. In a couple of cases, they managed to gain access to uh, laundries or plants that were producing clothing. And in one case, uh, they, they got access to the laundry that was serving uh, um, the crew of a number of U-boats. Wow. And they basically put this in their underwear. Like being in a U-boat isn't bad enough already. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but in this case, apparently, there was one of the U-boats that ended up having to be brought back to shore within about 48 hours because of this outbreak of dermatitis that no one could actually put their finger on. And so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a practical joke, but, yeah, as a military mission, it was bloody successful. Clever stuff. Mm. But possibly my favourite for just sheer you know, boyish excitement is that there, there was a particular kind of landmine that they produced, anti-vehicle mine, called the Tire Burster, uh, which was a small, you know, a couple of inches across uh, metal tin uh, with high explosives and a trigger that would only go off if there was about 150 pounds of pressure on it. So, you know, if someone stepping on it wouldn't set it off, but a vehicle going over it would. And it was designed to take out wheeled or tracked vehicles because it produced a, a pretty big bang. Well, you said 150 pounds. That's yes. not so much. No, sorry, it might have been 350 pounds. I, I remember yeah. it was a bit more than you'd expect from uh, from you know, a person standing sure. on it. The, the idea of these was that you could hide them fairly easily on the road. But what they discovered was that if they hid them inside animal excrement, then bored car drivers or bored military drivers <laughs> would actually go out of their way to run over them. It wasn't just a matter of dumb luck. You know, if they saw a big juicy cow pat on the road, they'd actually swerve to run over it and bang, the whole thing would go up. And, and so what this meant was that they then started producing uh, custom clay casements uh, for these things designed to look like animal excrement to make tempting targets for the road. But obviously, because these were being used in a number of different arenas, they had to localise them. So there was a section in Station 12 which basically researched the animal shit of Europe and, and looked for, you know, and designed these clay models. And I'm going to guess terms. those guys in that department weren't told why they were doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Study the shit! Do it! But, but I, I, I'd like to think they still love their job. Yeah, I want you to go and see what the barbarian goats do. <laughs> Ian Fleming took inspiration for the Q section in the James Bond films from SOE Station 12. And certainly a lot of the James Bond stuff seems to have been inspired by SOE. Ian Fleming himself didn't actually work for SOE. He worked for the Royal Navy. But he ran, up a, he ran a, a fairly similar style of commando unit called 30 Commando or 30 Assault Unit which carried out a number of similar types of missions, so he he was familiar with that kind of work. But he also knew a number of uh, former SOE people after the war and certainly drawn a number of their experiences and and some of their personality traits when he was putting together James Bond and some of the other supporting characters. I I, I remember reading that uh, Vesper Lynde from uh, Casino Royale was actually based on one of the female SOE agents. Hmm. I remember there was a James Bond role-playing game well, I keep saying it, but this seems a lot better um, set up for a role-playing game than James Bond does. Yeah, because you don't tend to get a lot of party play in. If you're looking at party play, at least. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thinking of the Bond angle, and specifically the original Casino Royale film, I'm thinking of uh, the scene where they're trying to desensitise Bond to uh, female advances. That sounds like it could go quite well into the training regimen that they had. <laughs> Well, actually, there was an element of that in the training. Uh, Not precisely that, but the the final part of the training involved going to what was referred to as as finishing school down in Bewley, uh, where you were taught a number of specialist subjects and um, taught a lot of particular bits of tradecraft. During the time that that people were at the finishing school, um, certainly at least the male candidates were quite often sounded out. There were a couple of ways that they did this. This was a a last way of just looking for any weak links. 
And one of them was that there was an SOE agent uh, who was known as Agent Fifi, who was um, a, a young, attractive blonde woman who basically used to, uh, under the guise of being a journalist, used to approach a number of the, the male SOE trainees. The, I mean, the rumours at the time was that she used to seduce them and listen to pillow talk, but you know, in practice that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, she, you know, the, now that her identity... Uh, has has become known and you know a bit more is known about the real woman it's it sounds much more like that she just basically flirted with them and tried to get them to to talk and a lot of cases yes you know people just got thrown out because they told her the wrong things Hmm. and sticking with grilling scott yet again uh, we now turn our eyes on network n well world war cthulhu is inspired very much by soe and certainly soe plays a big part uh, the the organisation at the heart of it is Network N, which operates as a subset of the SOE or this this you know secret organisation within a secret organisation. The cool thing about you know having this structure about having Network N providing these Mythos missions and providing the military missions and so on is that it sort of well as I said before it, it you know, not only provides uh, the, the the structure and the goals that you need without uh, determining how you approach them. But it also functions as you know what in seventh edition you'd call an investigator group, in that you know it gives you a pool of characters you can draw upon. Uh, it means that if your character dies or goes mad, you don't have to come up with some ludicrous pretext as to why another character comes in and takes his or her place, because your know, end's going to just recruit someone, or you know has probably already got a recruit, who you know he can just slot in to do that. It occurs to me that the structure is a little bit like a parallel to Delta Green. So you've got a secretive organisation within the American government. You've got a secretive organisation within the um, British military. Yes, I, I I suppose the differences are that there are no conspiracies within the government trying to counteract Network N. No, Network N you know, has got the support of the British government, has got the support of Churchill, and there's no real political or you know, hidden battles to be fought there mm-hmm. uh, that they can really just concentrate on getting stuff done. Mm. Yeah, also, Delta Green has a particular focus that it all, all routes lead back to Innsmouth in its formation. Whereas in this, in, in World War Cthulhu, you're not constricted by that one origin story. Um, you could come up with, like, say, N is a customizable toolbox. You can come up with whatever explanation you want as to why he's around, what he's doing, etc., mm. rather than being tied to that canon background. And that said, there are some uh, new books in the pipeline at the moment uh, which expand the World War Cthulhu setting to other time periods. One of the things that we're looking at doing uh, is with the World War One book, which will be coming out sometime next year, I hope, is that it will actually go in a bit into you know the formation, maybe not even the formation of Network N, but certainly N's origins. So that that may actually end up providing a bit of canon there. I mean, that doesn't mean that if you're just playing solely a World War Cthulhu campaign set in the Second World War, you don't still have that multiple choice option. But it means that there might be, you know, this 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 ongoing timeline that goes from there, you know, through World War Two, through to the the Cold War, and maybe even beyond, uh, that that connects, you know, N and his organisation through all these time periods. 
One thing as well that we're doing as well to open up the possibilities for Network N is in the World War Cthulhu London book, which was uh, funded as part of the uh, the London box set uh, for Cthulhu Britannica, the Kickstarter, uh, last year, uh, is that uh, it opens up the possibility for uh, civilian auxiliaries within Network N as well, who basically do ends bidding on uh, on the war on the home front. Because the agents in Network N are specialists, they're very highly trained, they've got SOE training and they're uh, trained for operating behind enemy lines. That doesn't mean that there aren't mythos threats that need to be dealt with on British soil, Mm -hmm. but they're just not necessarily the right people to deal with it. The agents that N uses on his missions, while they've had SOE training, they aren't recruited through the same methods as SOE agents normally are. They're very specifically chosen by N and brought into his network because they have experience of or brushes with the mythos. These are people he's identified as having what it takes to stand up to the mythos, uh, to deal with it. They've, they've survived their encounters and come out, you know, if not victorious, at least with something that's driving them. This means that you know, perhaps in some cases there are people who wouldn't even necessarily get through SOE training because he's looking for academics and other specialists who may not you know, have the, the physical capabilities to get through you know, a, a lot of the, the more rigorous parts of the commando training SOE did. So again, you've got quite a broad range of characters possibly there. And these characters, when N recruits them, <laughs> is not all, you know, he uses a combination of the carrot and the stick. Uh, in some cases, you know, he sees that people can be talked into, into joining his network out of patriotism, out of loyalty to the war effort, uh, out of a desire to fight the mythos. Or in some cases, he is quite willing just to blackmail them or threaten to send them off to prison or something like that if they don't do as he says. Hmm. So not everyone is there because they want to be. And now over to Paul for an example SOE mission. Another SOE operation was Operation Musketoon. This took place in Norway in 1942. The Germans had been in place in Norway for pretty much the whole of the war and were deriving a lot of resources from there, including um, fish for food and uh, aluminium and various metal ores. Obviously, this they wanted to put an end to this, and they sent a raiding party which consisted of 10 men, two of whom were Norwegian nationals. The team were sent for training in a large country estate in Scotland uh, for a couple of weeks' uh, intensive training before being sent off to Norway. The special equipment they were sent with included such things as a silk map of Norway and Sweden, a rice map, rice paper map of Russia, hacksaw blades, compasses sewn into their collar tabs, fighting knives, colt pistols and so on. The raid went pretty well except that they were detected by the Germans but they weren't captured immediately. They did manage to get in and plant plastic explosives on a couple of the water pipes that supplied the power plant. It was a hydroelectric plant. And they also managed to get into the main turbine hall and plant explosives on the turbines. Unfortunately, part of the team was then caught. Four of them escaped and their their initial plan was to be lifted out by plane, but that that was done away with during the planning phase and they decided that they would flee through Norway into neutral Sweden. Four of them managed to do that. Of the other eight, one was killed in action. The other seven were captured and sent to Colditz. 
The seven were then sent to Berlin where they were interrogated. They were then sent off to the Sachsenhausen concentration camp and on the next day, 23rd of October, they were shot in the back of the head and their bodies cremated. These commandos were the first fall victim to a Hitler's order issued on 18th of October 1942, which called for the execution of all commandos after capture. Their raid, however, was considered a great success. And now Matt will give us the background to another SOE mission. One of the things I've found when plotting out a World War Cthulhu scenario is to take an existing documented SOE mission and use that as a template that I can then be inspired by to add my own t uh, twist onto it. Rather, um, whether that be coming up with a completely fictionalised version that has a similar objective to a real mission, or just in some cases taking a real mission and then having a sideline to it that's then what the PCs get involved with. One mission in particular I found quite inspiring was Operation Harling. Uh, this was the sabotage of the Gorgopotamus Bridge in central Greece, which took place on the 25th of November 1942. The intention of the mission was to disrupt the supply chain to Rommel's North Africa Corps, which flowed through Greece. It went out to a port um, across the Mediterranean, over to North Africa, etc. Um, the SOE in the course of the mission had to unite the left-wing and right-wing resistance groups of the Greek resistance which were fundamentally opposed to each other in their ideology, yet they were both fighting for the same goal. They both wanted, at that time, the occupying Italian force to be kicked out of Greece. As it happened, it was later replaced by um, replaced by the full-blooded um, full Wehrmacht and the SS, and things went south for them very, very quickly. Uh, the SOE intended to back the smaller right-wing group originally, but the left found they found was much larger, and after negotiation, they finally came on board. Um, this was quite a remarkable point in the Greek cultural um, hist uh, recent history, that it was the only time the left and the right worked together during the course of the war. Yeah, because after the war that ended up turning quite bloody in terms of the Greek Civil War. Yeah, the first conflict of the Cold War. So this this was very much a the splintering and the fact the the division that happened afterwards is very much a harbinger of things to come. They took both sides up into the mountains in central Greece to be trained on an intensive guerrilla warfare training regimen, supplied with um, British Army equipment, and then marched them off to the um, to the bridges. They originally they were planning on um, attacking more than one bridge, but they decided after reconnaissance that only really the Gorgopotamus uh, viaduct was a adequate target, and consequently focused all their efforts there, and. Admittedly, while the battle took considerably longer than they were intending, reinforcements didn't arrive, they weren't interrupted, mission was a success. And all those that took part in Greece, whether they be left or right, are still held today as national heroes. So this is still a very moment of great pride for the Greek people, and show how they stood, um, stood up to their oppressors at the time. But yeah, as you said then, after that, they split, and yeah, the rest is history. Hmm, and not a pleasant bit of history. No. And now Paul will give us some examples of new mechanics from The Darkest Hour. To begin with, we have a few new occupations, such as politician, scientist and spy. We also have a selection of new skills. We have command, which to some degree is a parallel to the old credit rating, except in the battlefield. Uh, so this is used for commanding non-player characters. We have skills such as cryptography, demolitions, gunnery for mortars and cannons. Operate heavy machinery in the battlefield. Yes. yes <laughs> pretty much. 
Military science is an interesting one, giving a knowledge of battlefield tactics, figuring out the best insertion points into an enemy-held location and setting up an ambush. Other skills include operate radio, which is fairly self-explanatory, and another one, tradecraft. Tradecraft covers basically how to be a spy, how to do spy stuff. So surveillance, concealing items so they won't be found easily, covert signaling, infiltration, creating fake identities, and so on. Going back to Operate Radio for a moment, that may sound like a fairly mundane skill, but in a lot of ways it's the backbone of these operations. Being able to operate a radio safely and without detection, you know, being able to find good hiding places for them, and being able to avoid, you know, particularly in places like Occupied France, being able to avoid the, the detectors that uh, the Gestapo used uh, is a big thing. So, I mean, it may sound like you know, quite a trivial skill in the game, but I, I think... It's, it's the kind of thing that, in the right scenario, could actually end up being phenomenally tense. The book The Darkest Hour also includes some spot rules for vehicular combat, including investigators versus vehicles and mythos threats versus vehicles. An interesting one that caught my eye were the rules for parachuting. <laughs> deadly! Which are pretty deadly. De pretty deadly. But then parachuting it's, is pretty deadly, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like jumping out of a plane in the dark when there are people on the ground who are trying to kill you is a dangerous thing to do. But I like the way they've structured it with multiple roles. Uh, I was yeah. thinking, just, just take out the people trying to kill you part. And I know people at my office that have done that for fun. <laughs> Crazy <laughs> mad people. So, so you get a dex times nine roll, which you're pretty likely to make. But if you fail it, you've got entangled somehow and your, your main shoot isn't going to go off. So if you fail that, you get a dex times 7 roll. So gradually getting less, less likely. Failure to, means, to do that one means your shoot is tangled up or improperly deployed. Then you get a dex times 5 roll, which even if you make it, your reserve shoot has opened, but you still have to make a jump roll to land. Because I guess the reserve shoot isn't as good as the main one. Yeah, it's, yeah, smaller. it's smaller. It then has a really good equipment lists and these aren't just a basic equipment list this is these are various lists for different countries so you've got lists of equipment for uh, say the uk france italy germany and so on soviet union with prices and descriptions of the kind of items that you might find my eye was particularly caught by the dundee cake a <laughs> two pound dundee cake costing four shillings and six pence or five shillings and four pence under rationing and scarcity in 1940 <laughs> Because every good equipment pack needs Dundee cake. As you would expect for this kind of game, there are also some pretty comprehensive lists of weapons. No. Including some slightly more unusual ones that you might usually find in the game, such as bazookas, stick grenades, Vickers machine guns, and so on. Yeah, sa sadly, exploding rats didn't make it into that list, but I did put an entry for that in the upcoming SOE handbook. Hey. So if you need stats for exploding rats, they're in there. And returning to Scott, we discuss what a World War Cthulhu mission actually looks like. We've talked in very general terms about what World War Cthulhu missions involved and what the agents do, but let's let's drill down a little bit into that and, and look at what one might actually look like. A World War Cthulhu mission is divided into two parts. There's the military mission, which in a lot of cases is going to be an SOE mission that has has come up separately from N's requirements, that N has co-opted and latched onto and realised that he can twist to his own requirements. He will have seen that there's a mythos threat or target or something mythos-related that he wants done around the same area. I mean, this could be 
some kind of uh, monster or cult or something that needs to be taken out. It could be something that needs to be explored, some ruins where there are some evil myths uh, around the area. It could be a mythos tome that needs to be stolen from somewhere or some kind of um, some kind of artifact that needs to be recovered. But you know, all that in conjunction with this main military mission. So these missions are normally separate. Uh, the instructions to the Keeper for devising his or her own missions in the book do suggest very much that you keep them separate because they're dangerous enough you know, if you don't have them colliding and don't have the agents having to try to make hard choices about you know, which one they do. That's not to say that you should never do that, but you know, if, if you do that over and over again, it's going to not be awfully fair on the, the players in what's already a pretty deadly game. And also gets a bit tedious if you're using the same structure again and again. Yeah. The Keeper should look at this probably, in a lot of ways, like a normal Call of Cthulhu scenario. You've got your mythos threat, you've got something that needs to be dealt with or uncovered or researched or whatever, but at the same time, you had that military mission going on. Because they're taking place generally in the same location, uh, the the investigators will be able to divide their attentions between them. Uh, you know, they'll probably be preparing for both of them at the same time. But you know, for the pacing of the scenario, you'll you want to have different parts coming to ahead at different times. And in some cases, you know, it, it may even be that the military mission is you know it, it, not quite glossed over in the scenario, but certainly takes second fiddle to to the the main. Uh, mythos mission. For example, if you were operating behind enemy lines in France and going to a coastal town where there were rumours that they started worshipping Dagon or there was some consorting going on with people from the sea and you were supposed to be gathering information on that or maybe even putting a stop to it, that's going to be dangerous enough without it being linked to your, your military mission. So if your military mission at the time was, say, something like trying to you know, identify, locate and assassinate a black marketeer who has been selling out resistance members to the Gestapo, you know, that, that, that again is going to be dangerous enough without him, say, being protected by the cult, the cult of Dagon or being a member of it or something like that. As soon as you put those two elements together, then things become significantly more dangerous. As a keeper, you, know, you, you, you should you should spread these things out, and I, I think the other you know important aspect of that is, as Paul said earlier, it makes things feel varied and it makes things feel fresh and different from a normal Call of Cthulhu game. Yeah, and it provides a lot more intrigue as a player because you don't know how the missions overlap. But the good thing here is that you tend to be better informed about what the mythos threat is going to be than a lot of Call of Cthulhu investigators are. Because apart from anything else, your characters start off with a bit of Cthulhu mythos because they've had a brush with the mythos. But also, you know, N is very well informed about these things and he and his team will give you a briefing. So you've got some idea before you go out as to what you're dealing with. It may not be a complete briefing, it may not be entirely accurate, and you know, they may not know entirely what they're talking about, but you know, it's, it's a lot better than going in cold. Now a rundown of the published titles for World War Cthulhu by Cubicle 7. So, yes, the, the Darkest Hour, World War Cthulhu, The Darkest Hour, came out in 2013. And this is the core book for the World War II setting. It still requires that you've got a copy of Call of Cthulhu. It's not a complete game in itself. It is a supplement for Call of Cthulhu. In particular, Call of Cthulhu 6th edition and earlier. It contains all the rules you need for creating characters who are members of N's network. It gives you the background of, of N's network. Uh, it tells you a lot about uh, SOE and the kinds of missions that are going on in... 
different uh, uh, different areas across Europe. And it's also got a fairly meaty scenario in it uh, by by Gareth Hanrahan, which is it's more than just a one shot. It's almost like a mini campaign. Yeah, I was going to say campaign's probably the more the better descriptor for that yeah. <laughs> rather than just scenario. Yeah, it's, it's it's chunky and it's excellent. I mean, I I can say that in a very unbiased way because I didn't actually work on the Darkest Hour. I came into World War Cthulhu mm. after that had been published. <laughs> There's also a fiction anthology that came out on the back of that uh, called World War Cthulhu from Cubicle 7 that has got some wonderful writers in it. It's got James Lovegrove in it, who's one of my favourite writers. Robin Laws, Greg Stolze, and oh, about a dozen others. It's a collection well worth reading. You can get that as an e-book from the Cubicle 7 website. You know, now out is Europe Ablaze, which is a collection of six scenarios three of which were written by us, uh, the other three of which were written by Nick Robinson, Andy Nicholson, and Walt... I'm sorry for this, Walt, I will completely mispronounce your last name. You've told me a number of times how to pronounce it, and I get it wrong every time. Walt uh, Sichanowski, who you may know as the the line developer for Cubicle 7's Victoriana. Uh, we've got a couple of books which are about to come out. Well, no, I say about to come out. Uh, they, they, they'll be out uh, early next year. There's the SOE Handbook, which I mentioned, which is a supplement which... It's kind of an unusual supplement. What we did with it was we took a lot of interesting stuff from SOE training materials and uh, equipment manuals and stuff like that. You know, condensed it or you know, took, a lot, you know, took a lot of the cool stuff out, put it in, you know, took the gameable stuff out, put it in game terms, added game mechanics for some of it. And also, you know, we put in a lot of additional material, uh, annotations from N, which talk about the very uh, specific network N uh, applications for this and, you know, what will and won't work against certain myths Mythos threads and stuff like that. Annotations of a mythos nature. Yes. <laughs> and also, yeah, as I mentioned before, the uh, the, the Darkest Hour uh, was put out for 6th edition, but with uh, Call of Cthulhu 7th edition coming out next year, I will issue some conversion notes early next year as well for that and for Europe Ablaze. The other book I mentioned a little earlier uh, was World War Cthulhu London, which... Uh, which is the crossover between uh, the World War Cthulhu line and the Cthulhu Britannica line. Uh, and so it's, it's fundamentally a Cthulhu Britannica book that's set during the Second World War in Blitz-era London. It focuses mainly on civilian life during the Second World War, but there will be connections through to the larger World War Cthulhu line. There are a number of other neat things in development at the moment. I can't go into too many details about the rest of it at the moment because it's still in development. But there are going to be some announcements out from Cubicle 7 tomorrow. Obviously, <laughs> we'll be uh, well before this, this podcast is released. So I can at least hint at, at what it's going to be. Um, we're basically extending the World War Cthulhu line into other time periods. And at the very least, it's going to go back to World War One, going to go on to the Cold War and, and beyond from there. Um, and, yeah, there's, there's the, I, as, as well as, obviously, some new core books uh, to deal with, with those different uh, conflicts, there's going to be some very interesting connective tissue between them all. It's competition time. So, uh, if you want to win a copy of Europe Ablaze and The Darkest Hour on PDF, you can do. If you go to our Facebook page, Google Plus page, or Twitter account and simply share the status update that we're going to post with this episode, now it's going to be headed competition. 
So that's the one you want to share. Everyone who shares that post, for each share, we'll put it into a hat or a virtual hat and we'll pull out our name at random and the lucky winner will get one of each of those PDFs. Closing date for the competition will be January the 11th. That's the Sunday at the end of the first full week of January. So you should have several weeks in which to uh, get your entries in. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Well, since the last episode, a really quite shocking number of you have decided to give us money through Patreon. We're not complaining, we're just really pleasantly surprised. Yeah, big thanks to everyone who has hit that donate button. Indeed. Shocking, as Scott says. Well, th- 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 yeah, no, thank you. We, I mean, seriously. Our thank singing you. didn't put them off? I know. Did they I, hear that? I, I'm going to have to be more discordant now, aren't I? Because I didn't get to, uh, around to actually changing that donation level, so it didn't say singing. You. I, and, and, and three more people have signed up to have their name sung. Three more. Three. Who would have thought so? So let's start off with a personal thanks to three new backers. So it's a big thanks to Paul. He's not, he hasn't given a surname on the backers list, so uh, you know who you are, Paul. Thanks very much. And a big thank you to Tor Nielsen. Thank you, Tor. And thank you to Ollie Palmer, another one of the MK RPG crew. Thanks very much, Ollie. And now we're getting on to the singing part again. Yeah, once again, whose fucking stupid idea was this, Paul? Isn't this the we punch Paul in the face again? <laughs> Until he gets the message. Do, do there were only two last time. This time there are three. Yeah. Should we say what their names are so people can actually make out? Because I met somebody and they said they didn't realise there was actually words in the singing. <laughs> it was just Gregorian chant. That's what it was. <laughs> there were words in those noises, but I couldn't make them out. For time. Right, so um, we have a special thanks to Neil Latham. Alina Gullion. And David Smith. Thank you for calling the good friends of Jackson Elias. Please speak aloud what you would like to hear next. You have selected singing. Is that right? You said yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I guess that about wraps things up then. It does. It felt, for a few instances, like we were try- attempting to do an episode of Hardcore History. Have you listened to that? I have, yes. Yeah. yeah. If, if anybody hasn't listened to it, look up the podcast Hardcore History. The guy does a fantastic show in really in-depth material. Some of the show's go on for up to about five hours. Mm. So it feels about as long as we've been here trying to practice people singing their voice, uh, their names. He yeah. doesn't sing, though. Ah. But he does a, he does a well, wonderful job of exploring various themes, and some of which are World War II. 
But but as long as he doesn't sing, he'll never be as good as us. Ah, there you go. Bit of a different show tonight. It was a bit more serious in places. I think yeah. because of the theme of it, really. Yeah, I and mean, it's it's difficult to be light-hearted about the Second World War. It is really, well, unless you're um, unless you spike Dad's, Gilligan or Dad's Army mm-hmm. or a lower low. Well, actually, it's pretty easy. Second World War. All right, yeah, springtime for Hitler. <laughs> oh, all right, well. <laughs> well, what, what's the Second World War ever done for us? Yeah. <laughs> so you were saying, Scott? No. <laughs> nothing. Nothing at all. If you have any questions about World War Cthulhu that we haven't answered, then feel free to come on over and on social media and ask us questions or come to the website and ask us questions. And we can probably even answer them. Yeah, it's almost as if we have an in-house guest who can answer most of them as well. Don't forget the competition. Get sharing. That wraps up for tonight's show. So it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com And of course, guns! Guns, guns! guns. Everybody together now, guns! Guns, guns, guns! guns. guns. <laughs> Bazookas, stick grenades, Vickers, MGs. <laughs> <laughs>